Welcome to the Information Entry Podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the universe with me, your host, Richard Gazzy, and also Tom, Tom James. This week, we're taking our listeners on a journey through interstellar space, discussing all things related to space exploration, dark matter, and all things Fermi, also Meti and Seti. We'll come on to that in a bit. From the latest missions to the outer reaches of our solar system, to the cutting edge technology that are paving the way for interstellar travel, we'll delve into some fascinating worlds of space and exploration. So sit back, buckle up, and get ready to blast off into the cosmos of the Information Entry Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Information Entry Pod, Instagram Information Entry Pod. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your pod, uh, your podcasting needs. And if you can, giving us a rating also helps a lot. Even if it's good, even if it was bad, give us some constructive feedback. Um, yeah, if you don't like, you know, giving us any sort of things on any sort of ratings on any sort of platforms, you can interact with us on any social media using hashtag IEPod. Yeah. How's it going, Tom? Oh, that's all right. Bit he- bit of a headache, but uh, bit of a headache, bit of a bit self-inflicted. Bit you know, <laughs> I should have listened Party to our alcohol episode. You know, and then um, I'd be having a much better time right now. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's quite funny because you came in like, oh, I had a bit of a late one. I was like, Oof. and late one for people our age is like twelve. Yeah, twelve now. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> apparently so. Yeah. It completely threw me when I was at uni, and they're like, "Right, uh, we'll uh, we'll get ready, and we'll we'll leave to go to the clubs." And we're like, oh, "Okay, cool. What time will that be?" And they're like, "Oh, well, we'll leave at like half ten. I'm like, "Leaving at half ten? Are you mad?" Yeah, I, I could, I should be used to it, really. In um, in, in the continent, in Europe, you know, when I was in Italy, you don't get to the club until like eleven midnight. You don't leave till like four or five. Um, yeah, luckily, just... I was slightly past the, my clubbing days at that point, so mm-hmm. I didn't have to endure it many times. But uh, yeah, just a, another way of life there. It's just it, I, I don't know how people cope. I don't know how people cope with that. It's <sighs> I, one time it happened, and it was at a, like a house party, and some of my friends who I, I then lived with secondly, they were like, "We don't want to go out either," and I was like, "Cool." We just sat here and just chat about like anime and Magic the Gathering. They're like, "Yeah, that sounds good. Let's just do that." That sounds like a good time. It was. It was a. It was a better time than going out to. I think it's Fire Station in Bournemouth. What it was. It was called like the Student Union Building. It's called the Fire Station. You know, some, some names like really set the scene for clubs and bars, and Fire Station just sounds so underwhelming. <laughs> well the thing being is it it was an old fire station that they converted okay. into a um party central uh and you could you could tell because it had like that tower on the top of the bell and then the big window okay, that's pretty front. cool yeah there's also i went to it once uh and it was mediocre at best uh. um <laughs> called a place called halo Okay. I think there's a few halos around around the country in the UK, but this particular halo uh, was a church that had been retrofitted into a nightclub. Oh. Yeah. How's that? Uh it was it was interesting to to go and view people. We kind of snuck into the top area that we weren't supposed to go into because we didn't have the right bands, and then watched people 
below and one of the funniest things happened because the whole the harmony was a bit of a bit of a bust to be honest the music was just generic as all things go it wasn't great uh guy called jaguar is it jaguar skills not jaguar skills i think that is a person he used it. yeah it is but i don't think it's, it's i don't think it's them there was, there was another late night dj okay who um friend and i used to listen to uh and try and get like shout outs on but I remember being better. It was not better. It was bad. So Grace and I spent the whole evening like just people watching. And the funniest situation that happened was we were watching this guy who obviously wasn't feeling great, threw up on the dance floor um, when it wasn't particularly packed, uh, then ran off to the toilet. And what happened was one of the people that worked there walked past, kind of saw it, I saw like this liquid on the floor because it could be pretty dark. Then proceeded to walk over, then look up. Like there was like a drip in the ceiling. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, mate, it's not a drip. Someone's oh, thrown up there. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah. And then someone else slipped on it. And I was like, oh, they need to no. clean it up because it's going to be, someone's going to fall over and then fall straight into it with like full body. That would not be a great time. It would not not be a great time whatsoever. Um, um, and then we left and then we got uh, some subways. And then just went back to my, my hall's residence, which was was pretty fancy. But, yeah. That's fair. I, I went into a converted yeah. church recently, but it wasn't a nightclub. It was a climbing center. Oh, that could be pretty cool. Oh, because of the, the high ceilings. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what I expected going in, but you got downstairs where it's like bouldering and stuff. And then upstairs, mm-hmm. which is like ropes. And yeah, it's a perfect kind of scenario for it because you've got massively high ceilings. Good use of space. Yeah. Yeah. Good use of space. Clever use of space. Indeed. All right. So uh, we're three episodes. This will be our third episode in a couple of days for us. I think we're doing well. Yes. For us recording. We are number three. And number three on our space adventure. Yeah. All all things space. We've done two. We covered... um, what did we cover yesterday? So we did uh, the solar system, <laughs> we did the sun, we did moon formation did in the first two moons. episodes. Uh, lots of moon stuff. How did the moon lots even appear? How does it affect the tides and conquers? Yeah, the collision. Giant impact theory. Conquer, yeah, conquer, conquer. <laughs> <laughs> conquers, the recurring theme. Uh, yeah. In case you didn't know, basically the universe is just can be all analogies can come back to conkers so yeah. uh yeah get prepared anything for that. spinning really i, I think, well, I think it's more of a uh, anything that spins barry centers and if you don't know what a conquer is or what the game conquers is then <laughs> i'll just let you find that out either on your own or you can go back and listen to the past couple of episodes um mm. I've, I've i've done some quizzing of people on whether you should be allowed to modify your conquers pre-fight. Mixed reviews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're pretty much at 50-50 at the minute. Um, I'm disowning all the people who said you are allowed to modify your conquers. <laughs> they, were, they, were not, they weren't on the list. Yeah. The list of people <laughs> you no longer talk to. Yeah, those people definitely don't get shout-outs anymore. Um, any, anything like that. Um, what? 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 I, you, you so? Yeah. Well, you know, I thought this was a, a clear-cut case, but apparently not. Maybe I'm the problem. No. You know, yeah, I'm the problem. You, you... It's me. Hello. <laughs> me. <laughs> um. 
Um, it's me. I don't see what your issue is vinegaring the conkers. Because if you go into a fair fight and you're not expect, you know, it's, I feel like it's just that's, cheating, that's, isn't that's it? You, that, that's you with the like the piss ball preparation thing. Well, I feel like if you just find a conker on the ground and then you just want to play conkers right then, who's going home to vinegar their conky? <laughs> that oh, sounds yeah, like that's, a weird okay. analogy. You know, um, I, 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 you know what? I get that. I get, I get that. But you know, if If you're, if you're just out there, but if you're out and about, have you got like one of the, the corers to like put a hole in it to then, you know? Uh, well, if you're at school, someone's got a drill and some string. A drill? Yeah. At school? This day and age? Hell nah, mate. Hell well, nah. Not the kids, obviously, but. No. <laughs> not the kids. No, not the kids. Fair. Right. Moving on from Conkers. We've spoken enough about these mystical things. Um,. Well, what's, uh, what's the plan today, mate? So today we are talking all things Drake Equation, Rare Earth Hypothesis, Matty, Seti, Fermi, uh, which for those that it's all to do with extraterrestrial life and if it's out there and if we can find it. And if we get through that, we'll get onto some, uh, some black holes and some gravitational time dilation and maybe some dark energy. We'll, stop, we'll start easy. We'll start easy. We'll like... And what's probably going to happen is <laughs> we'll finish the search for extraterrestrial life. And just as we're about to, you know, get into the deep stuff, we'll have to go to the next episode. So next episode is just going to start dark matter, dark energy. What is existence? Yeah. Type all stuff. Kind of swinging. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. You know, if, you, if you're taking part in the series, then you know. You're in the know. Um, you're, you're a Noah. You're a Noah. So this, my, one of my favorite terminologies at the moment is um, calling someone Noah in gaming is the polite way of saying they're cheating and they've got like war hacks. So they're oh, a Noah. Okay. So, oh, so we moved on from like, having a gaming chair. Oh, uh, yeah. So having the gaming, like he's got a better gaming chair than me. For those that, that, that was, uh, <laughs> me that I created was just like, if you have a better gaming chair, you play better. And then people that obviously cheat, so they've got like war hacks and they can auto aim and auto fire and stuff. They would have the best gaming chairs, and obviously they spent more on their gaming chair than I did. Um, but that's moved on into them being a knower, which just means like you know they know, they obviously know. Um, yeah, it's a big big thing in talk of the moment is the battle against knowers. Yeah, you know, they uh, a guy. Uh, I explain, yeah, explain this to you. A guy, one a, a big streamer. Um, did an investigation and got a lot of flack for it, but I think it was necessary to sort of, you know, shake the, the hornet's nest. That is Battlestate Gaming. Um, and essentially what he did was he tried to hire a hacker for the movie, uh, the, the, the video that he was making, so he could, like, do it. But, you know, if they if they, if a hacker gets involved and the, the, the cheat makers know who it is, they'll get banned from using the cheats weird situation okay. but essentially what he did is he paid for cheats for escape from tarkov himself and then he did an investigation to work out how he could tell there were there were hackers or cheaters in his game and what like the percentage was right um got a lot of flack for it because you know he used cheats but he he put like ethical rules in place like he wasn't allowed to kill players um if he was going to kill someone it, only can, it could only be a, a non-player npc so he could level up and that kind of thing. And yeah. we would never do things like take high value loot, that sort of stuff. Um and he found out like sixty percent 
oh, of wow. all raids had someone that was cheating in it. That's so if lot. you play 10 times, there is at least, out of those 10 times, out of six, six games, there's at least one person that's cheating. That's not great. No, no. And it was like, blew the doors off it. And then, you know, the kickback from BSG was just like, no, we're doing this. Like, we ban, like, a, like every week, like 4,000 people that are using cheats. Like, it was a ridiculous number. Because the thing being with Escape from Tarkov, there's something called real money trading. And that is you pay real money for, like, money in-game or items in-game that you uh, that are of high high value. Okay. Um to shortcut i don't know that kind of thing uh if you don't want to play the game properly i don't get it because uh, <laughs> part of part of that game is sucking at it and then you know having those wins after sucking for so long makes it feel better yeah um that's kind of like the whole whole gambit but you know the, the, the other common flip is there are like f- you know family people who work nine to fives get off in the evening and then don't want to suck all evening yeah so i can understand both sides um I, well, no, i'm never gonna be like go cheat but if people do cheat i can and the reason being is they don't have time then i can be like yeah not everyone can be sweaty and good at the game like it's me. more ethical than <laughs> uh just being bad and cheating for the sake of it or ruining people's day yeah yeah like rage hacking which is something that you see when people get so angry at sucking for so long, they just like toggle. That's the oh, thing, toggling. Toggle is bloody toggle is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, uh, shall we bring this slightly back on track to yeah, space? Yeah, news. And got some news. Got, got some, some news. Space news. Okay. Yeah, I got some news. So this is quite an interesting one, um, and it's about black holes. So it's, it's in its thematic. And this is, this would be two weeks ago, three weeks old by the time this goes live, um, just to keep things transparent. But a runaway black hole has been spotted fleeing a distant galaxy. Oh. Yeah. So a streak of light stretching away from a remote galaxy might be the first sure sign of a gargantuan black hole on the run. So the black hole fleeing the host galaxies appears to have left a trail of newborn stars and shot gas in its wake. If confirmed, so this is, they're currently doing the research to com- absolutely confirm this, but it's, it's about, you know, 90% there. The intergalactic escape could help astronomers learn more about what happens to black holes when galaxies collide. So there's an image that we'll try and get and post it that they, they got of this. Uh, and it's essentially, if you look, like, you've got all the stars, like a normal starry image, there's just like a, a white line that looks a bit brighter than the rest. Essentially what happened is the black hole's gone through and pulled, you know, everything together. And as it's done that, in its wake, it's like pulled things and started stars and combustion. So everything in that line is a bit more denser than everywhere else, so they, they could see it. That's wild. I was just about to ask, like, oh, well, if you've got a nebula and a black hole just rips through there, it may just, like, kickstart, like, a, yes. a star nursery, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially that's, that's wild. It. Because it, is it, it's not going to absorb 100% of everything. In its path, or the path that it can't escape, so when it's the um, point of no return, what event is it called, horizon. The event horizon. Once, it, once you get past that, it can't go. But everything around that will start to... Yeah, it's got like a sphere of influence, right? And that influence extends from sucking in to like just distorting, right? And there's a spectrum in between. So 
That's really cool. Yeah. You gotta remember Absolutely when... bloody terrifying. Considering, <laughs> yes. you know, what if one just comes <laughs> our way? But uh, yeah. pretty cool. And it explains a lot about potentially early formations of the... Or earlier formations of the, the universe, right? If you just have nebulas that aren't really doing much and nothing's really happening, but you then suddenly have a black mm. hole rip through. Just kickstarts the whole process. Yeah. Which it is, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Because one of the statements they put at the quotes is, if a black hole leaves a galaxy, it doesn't leave by itself. <laughs> That's the way it works. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Brings um, everything with it. Yeah, so that's the, some of the, some of the they they thought possibly that it could be because you get a uh, black hole plumes, okay, and that's like where it gets pulled in from like the top. There's a cylinder of just like mass that's just like an inferno. And they thought it could be that, but then it would it would have to go both ways because yeah. it's both it's top top and bottom. We're talking like it comes out the poles, <laughs> space. Yeah, pole. They but that's a better way of describing it. Um, so yeah. Because like the gas is all mixed up in this manner, the radiation that it emits is stronger, and because of that, telescopes can our telescopes can detect it. Um, but I think they they said like this was, you know, eight billion year old light. Oh, so, happened a, happened a long time ago. <laughs> okay, so all, that is that really what we could be seeing then is if we went to that place now, magically. Um, they could, they could full be planets, yeah. They could be galaxy, stars, planets, planets. star systems going yeah. on that were started by this black hole just ripping through a nebula. Like, that's wild, yeah. That's really cool. Essentially, another part of the universe, if there is intelligence life out there, could be doing the same thing to us. Yeah, that was a smooth segue. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Well, well done. <laughs> um, yeah, mad thing to think about. Um, but the question because, becomes, yeah, is there life out there looking back at us? Yes, is there? Is there the possibility? Are there any equations that people have written that are famous? Well, that were written in 1961. <laughs> Would you like to explain said equation? <laughs> <laughs> so what we're specifically talking about here is Drake's equation. Not Sir Francis Drake, the explorer, but Dr. Frank Drake. Yeah, I, the, I I have mixed them up before, and yeah. uh, the, the looks you get. Oh yeah, Francis Drake. Yeah, who also developed the Drake equation. Yeah, no, different guy. No, it's Frank, <laughs> just Frank. Like because there's Drake Circus down where near I where I live down here in the south. Oh um, yeah, because you know that's where they they. I was going to say shuttled off, but that's not the right term. Pushed off, set Left off port. Left port, yeah, is where Francis Drake decided to leave for Worlds Unknown. Um, but Frank Drake wrote an equation. Uh, well, the, the Drake equation is a probabilistic argument used to estimate the number of active, communicative, extraterrestrial civilizations in the, in the Milky Way. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Essentially that. Should we just leave it that, you know? That's it, done. Thanks for joining. Yeah, um, <laughs> this, we wrote this back in 1961. It's not. It's, it's not mathematical in any way. It's just a like the probability isn't zero because yeah. once they, once you do all this because it's the, the answer is not zero, then you can probably say there is like life out there in the universe. Um, yeah, it's a, not a, a lot of these kind of the number. 
Yeah. It's it's just to say, here's a scientific uh, dialogue to like how there possibly could be without us actually finding any. Yeah. So it's the sixties. You know, sci-fi stuff just kicking off. Asimov's having a great time. Yeah. Uh, writing all his books. Um, but essentially, it was like, okay, we're getting to the stage where we can leave our planet. So I think the natural question becomes, well, considering how big the universe is, surely there's other life out there. Um, and so a lot of questions and equations and things we'll address today kind of come from that line of thinking. Um, but the Drake equation is more, as you say, it's not purely mathematical, but it's more of like a thought experiment, right? It has scientific grounding, even if we can't exactly plug exact numbers in there uh, all, yeah. all the time. So the equation itself, you have to bear with me. Use your your mind's eye if you if you fan. phantasmic, but that's not the right word. <laughs> uh, well, fantastic. If you if you fantastic, hyperfantastic. So n equals r star times fp times ne times f1 times fi times fc times l. So N at the end is the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible. Uh, so that's what we're trying R, to find out. Yeah, this is what, on the left side, this is what you're trying to equals. And R is the average rate of star formations in our galaxy. FP is the fraction of those stars that have planets. And NE is the average number of planets that can support life per star that has planets. FI is the fraction of those planets that could support life that actually developed to life at some point. FI is the fraction of the planets that life that actually could go on to develop intelligent life, such as, you know, ourselves that could create technology that go and communicate into the, the, the openness of the uh, outer space. FC is the fraction of civilization that developed technology. I just said that. Uh, and then <laughs> L is the length of time of which those uh, those civilizations release detectable signals into space. Now, yeah. So the equation so like, essentially it's a, it's goes not, from it just breaks it down bit by bit. Okay, here's yeah. all the like this is the entire cascade. Milky Way. Then let's break that down into how many stars we have. Break that down into how many planets are around those stars. And then just slowly breaks it down. Okay, is there life? Are they intelligent? Do they have the technology to communicate? Right. And then the length of time that they would actually be sending that that period into space. So how long would they be communicating? Yeah, which is more critical than I have ever thought about it, really. Yeah, because in terms of like galactic scale, yeah, like the human race has been pumping things into space for like since the nineteen sixties, fifties. Around then, I'd say fifties, sixties. I mean, as yeah, as long as we've had radio 50s, 50s. technology, really. So that's like. 70 years now we've been doing it and if you if you take into like the the age of the universe and how long it takes to you know, for stars to form that is so small yeah it seems like on, on the human scale like, oh that's an entire lifetime um yeah but in terms of the galaxy it's not even a fraction of a blip so yeah, not, we just kind of have to hope we're sending signals in the right direction as well as we're spinning <laughs> yeah. through the universe right <laughs> out everywhere in all directions yeah it's like um, a fire it's like a, a match in space terrifying yeah. 
terrifying. Oh yeah, well that's true. That is terrifying. Because which it doesn't go up. Like if people don't people don't realize this that like the reason that wait is it gravity the reason why it goes up? Um. Well, air. Because hot air rise is less dense, and the flames. Oh, no, because in space. Yeah. When they light the torch to do the match, they it's not the air that causes it to go into a sphere, is it? Oh well, yeah. No, that would be the lack of gravity for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrifying. That's why, like, fire on space stations. Are is this another one of your like your right. irrational? Not irrational. It's totally rational. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, no, no, it's no, it's an irrational fear because I'm never going to be in the space station, am I? Well, no, but like, it's a total rational fear. Do you know what? I mean? It's grounded in logic. Maybe you'll never be in the scenario. So, okay, you're scared of. I think everyone should be scared. Really, uh, so this is this is a, fire this is in space. Interesting, like pool yeah. water in space. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one of those. So. We talked about this, uh, Grace and I, about one of her work colleagues. I think it had like a, you would, I think you had a, had a, a, you know, a fear of um, crocodiles. Okay, which I thought was really interesting because she lived in the UK, and that's not something we get. No, that's so true. would you say that's an irrational fear? Because, or would you say it's rational? Like it's rational to be scared of crocodiles, but oh, is it's a hundred percent rational the- to be scared. And then if you are scared in that moment, it completely makes sense. Um, yeah, that person is very unlikely to come across a crocodile. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like it's not; it's still grounded in realism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think like irrational existential fears are like, okay, I'm terrified every moment that a wandering black hole is going to come by and just suck Earth up. A very valid fear to have. Yes. And you don't want to dwell on it too long. <laughs> However, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, yeah. And it's so very unlikely. You know, you kind of could Yeah, like if you're going to do push a risk assessment that. on it, it'd be like likelihood chance, incredibly low. Yeah. Um, impact, very high. Because it's so incredibly low, you don't put it on the on the chart, really. Yeah. So I, I found an explanation about uh, the you know, flames going up. And the reason is gravity, but not the reason that I thought it was gravity. So, the pull of gravity draws colder, denser air down to the base of the flame, displacing the hot air which rises. And this convection uh, process feeds the fresh oxygen to the fire and causes it to go up or look like it goes up. Okay, so we were correct together, but not individually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but not for, the, yeah, for different reasons. But yeah. yeah. See, this is why we, we do it together this show, you know? Yeah, together we no want to listen to a monologue, <laughs> a science monologue, <laughs> for an hour. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, dear me, like I never want to do the the solo one that I did where I explained the internet. Jeez, oh, I thought it was good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, first one was bad. The second one was alright because the first one I was just rapping, <laughs> speaking so quickly because he's like, I've got some notes. Let's get through it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, Drake equation. Mm-hmm. What's uh, yes? What they say in these days? What's going on there? These days? Oh, I mean, just like we, okay, we've we've laid out the equation. Are there any yeah. problems with it? Because it's a highly speculative um, thing, right? It is. People, people, yeah, have criticised it, saying the equation focuses not. Uh, well, criticism related to the, the Drake equation focuses not on the equation itself because the equation's fine, but on the fact that the estimated values of several of the factors are highly 
conjectural, like right. the combined multiplicative effect being that the uncertainty associated with any derived value is so large the equation cannot be used to draw any like firm conclusions. But the point isn't to draw firm conclusions. Is my counter criticism to that? Yeah. It's it's not to be like, yeah, there's four. <laughs> like <laughs> eventually if you have if you have enough information we plug into this, you could theoretically work it out. But at the moment it's not it's to say like if n doesn't equal zero, probabilistically there is life in the stars. Yeah, but because it's a multiplicative equation, basically these people are saying there's much like it the can, error room there is so big. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. No, that's true. I think, as you, you say, it's kind of a thought experiment just to be like, okay, well, it's possible. So mm-hmm. use it as a launching pad. Um, but there, I guess the rate of star formation, we kind of know. The fraction of those stars that have planets, we know. And the number of planets that can potentially support life, we know. Like, those are pretty solid numbers we can put in, I think. And yeah, only getting the, better the, the more telescopes uh, are using to find exoplanets and things like that. But it's whether mm, the fraction yeah, of those definitely. planets that actually develop life, that's just such an unknown, right? Because for yeah. all we know for now, it's one. It's us. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's one and it's us. And it's it could be like so rare. Yeah. Like, we could just be a complete and utter fluke. There's no scientific, like, because we don't have like two to go off of. Yeah. And I think because, like, scientists work with probability so much and they just go, well, there's so much out there. I think most scientists kind of go, there's probably life out there. Whether it's a single-cell amoeba on some random planet, we don't know. But it would be so staggeringly unlikely that there's not something out there, purely because of how many planets exist that we can't be the only fluke and that the only fluke yeah. has developed into conscious thinking stardust. <laughs> uh, that explains it. Yeah. There's a whole like story to how he came about the equation. Okay. So actually it starts back in 1959 uh, where physicist <laughs> Giuseppe. Giuseppe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Philip Morrison, they published an article in the journal Nature with the provocative title, Searching for Interstellar Communications. And they argued that radio telescopes had become sensitive enough to pick up transmissions that might be broadcast into space by civilizations orbiting other stars. So yeah, 1950s, 1960s was when they when, they, when it started. Okay. Um, and they suggested that it might be transmitted on a wavelength of 21 centimeters, which is 100, uh, 1,420 hertz, megahertz. Uh, and this wavelength of radio emissions by natural hydrogen, the most common element on Earth, and they reasoned that other intelligence might be able to, you know, see it because it's... Uh, because most, it's the most common yeah. uh, thing going. It would make sense yeah. for other civilizations to utilize that wavelength. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two months later, then a Harvard University astronomer known as Professor Harlow Shapley. That's a great of, name. Yeah, Harlow Shapley. Uh, the number of... In- Inhabited planets in the universe saying the universe has 10 million, million, million suns. That's 10 followed by 18 zeros, similar to our own. And one in a million has a planet around it. And only one in a million, million has the right combination of chemicals that mature water days, night cycles to support planetary life as we know it. 
This calculation arrives at the estimated figure of 10 million worlds where life has been forged by evolution. And 100 million worlds, even. So he did the maths. Okay. Um, and that's still very conservative. And what we mean by that is yes. not politically, but... Um, <laughs> like They just hate poor people. They, they, um, they, they, they just hate poor people. No. Uh, <laughs> it, when you're making conservative estimates, you're basically going, okay, there's a range here between, say five and ten but i'm going to choose the lowest one so that yes i'm not over exaggerating i'm under exaggerating as much as possible so the fact that yeah. he he did that and then there's still 100 million potentials uh is a lot yeah and one of the things i want to point out as well is as we know it it's planetary life as we know it so i don't say there's a lot of ego in science but saying like carbon-based life forms like us evolved like us there could be aliens out there that aren't carbon based could be energy based yeah something that we haven't even thought about so this is very like in the sphere of like humans evolving in a certain way for sure i mean that's another thing right we're one of the major assumptions is that i mean there's potential thought experiments about silicon based life um, we know a lot of animals, especially in the sea, use silicates mm-hmm. a lot, especially some diatoms. Um, but what if aliens are too alien, you know, that we can't even think yeah. about how they're trying to communicate? That's another th- mm-hmm. another thing. Yep. So after this was published, um, Drake made the first search for signals from communicative extraterrestrial civilizations. Didn't detect anything. Used a lot of money. Um, no, it, it was in, inexpensive actually for the time. It just used a. It was called Project Osma, which is a twenty-five meter dish at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and just slowly scanned frequencies close to twenty-one centimeter wavelengths for six hours a day between April and July. Didn't find anything because of that. Didn't find anything. Drake then hosted a search for extraterrestrial intelligence meeting. Um, at the Greenback facility in 1961. And in preparation for the meeting, he created the equation. So the quote that, the quote of how he wrote it was, as I planned the meeting, I realized a few days ahead of time we needed an agenda. And so I wrote down all the things you needed to know to predict how hard it was going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. And looking at them, it became pretty evident that if you multiplied all these together, you got a number, N, which is the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy, this was aimed at radio search and not to search for primordial or primitive life forms. So essentially, he wrote the agenda when, ah, if I just times these down, <laughs> we get the answer to the solution. Fair. And it's <laughs> held up, right? It's not being changed. Yes. Like a lot of the time you go, okay, these equations are made and then people refine them over time. But it's mm-hmm. one of those things mm-hmm. that we literally don't have the information to put in there to know if it needs changing. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Great starting point, though. Imagine just, like, the thing you're most famous for just being something you wrote down the day before because you needed an agenda. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? That's mad, yeah. Crazy to think. Indeed it is. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess that that leads quite nicely into certain paradoxes. Unless you've got oh, more you wanna, equation you wanna... Drake stuff to uh, enlighten us with. 
Yeah, no, we can jump into some paradoxes and some hypothesis. And then, well, I don't know, do you want to do like, so there's Meti and Seti, which are like... Okay, yeah, do you want to explain what that is? I mean, you, you, you mentioned Seti there, uh, the inaugural yes. meeting. So, yeah, let's do yeah. that. So, Meti and Seti. What are Meti and Seti? So, Meti is the messaging of extraterrestrial intelligence. Is that going right? Yes. Um, essentially, <laughs> Meti. <laughs> There's a question mark at the end there. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's essentially it's a group that is all about messaging, messaging, you know, into space and working out and rethinking the nature of the messages, how they're going to send it, what the message is going to consist of, if it's like can be scientific or mathematic. Um, and then, like, how are you going to send it? Essentially, uh, build a multi uh, interdisciplinary community, uh, community, committee, community, community design interstellar messages with context of evolution of intelligence and language. And in 2016, in May, Betty convened the meeting, the intelligence of SETI, cognition and communication in extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, I'm struggling with all the T's and E's in extraterrestrial. Um, <laughs> it's in a hard word. Week yep. And then in 2018, they held the meeting Language in the Cosmos, which in conjunction with the International Space Development Conference, this meeting was held in Los Angeles and examined the connection between astrobiology and linguistics to work out what is the best way of communicating into space. Um they also search for life beyond Earth. Specifically, they conduct optical search for extraterrestrial intelligence using the optical SETI observatory in Panama that looks for uh, laser pulses from advanced civilizations. And it has examined anonymous stars like the nearby red dwarf star, Ross 128, as well as HD 164495, which is Ross with the tongue, which is 94 light years <laughs> from Earth. Unfortunately, none of these searches have yielded any evidence of artificial signs from extraterrestrial intelligence. Yet. I mean, we've got to yet. remember we're on the blipped, on the blipped time scale. Um, yeah. And then... Yeah, that's true. The, the passing ships in the night situation is real. And then yeah. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial life. So these are kind of like close together. It's the collective term for scientific search for intelligent extraterrestrial life. For example, monitoring electromagnetic radiation for signs of transmissions from civilizations from other planets. Um, the scientific investigation began shortly after the event of the radio in the early 90s, 1900s, uh, and focused in international efforts that began since 1980s. And then in 2015, Stephen Hawking's and Russian billionaire Yuri Milina announced a well-funded effort called Breakthrough Listen. Cool. Yes. I just saw, and I didn't realise that the UK was so involved with METI and SETI. Um, but last year, April, May time, uh, down in Cornwall, we have a satellite Earth station there. And they mm, we do. were... Do you remember the TRAPPIST-1 system? The discovery of TRAPPIST-1? It's a sun-like star that's got seven planets orbiting it. And three of those planets mm -hmm. lie within the Goldilocks zone, where water could remain liquid and potentially support life. It was heralded as one of the biggest um, 
exoplanet discoveries in terms of potentially finding life. And they went, okay, we're going to send a message to these this system specifically because as far as we know for now, it's the best chance we have of you know thinking life would be somewhere. And they submitted mm-hmm. the periodic table in binary format from Cornwall and just blasted it straight at Trappist. Um, it's probably not there yet, considering how far away yeah, Trappist say, is. How long does it take? And radio signals uh, travel. So I think radio signals travel close to the speed of light? Or would it be spe- speed mm. of sound? How fast do radio waves signals travel? Uh, three million meters per second. How far away is Trappist one? Forty light years. So it's going to take a while to get there. Um. Okay. Yeah. So it travels at the speed of light. So it's going to take forty years to arrive. So we're one year. Mm-hmm. We're one year in. Maybe we'll hear back in <laughs> eighty years. So if you listen to this now, keep an eye out. Um, mm-hmm. And basically they're saying they're testing a version of what's called the zoo hypothesis that we're just going to assume that they are there and they know that we're here. Um, and maybe they're sending their own periodic binary table at the same time. You never know. Um, and basically they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we want to be part of your galactic club. So please respond. You know? The galactic club. That's the way they, they've gone at it there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, kind of just a really sad attempt, you know. Just hope they don't leave us on read, you know. Yeah, red on red. Yeah, bloody hell, words. <laughs> <laughs> so they are actively, you know, they're thinking about what to send, and they're actively doing it, you know. Um, mm. mm-hmm. So yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah, just a little life update. The, uh, the house across to me have just come back for like lunch and they've got McDonald's and it's making me sad because now I want McDonald's. Uh, how that works? Yeah. Advertisement, emotion. We don't have McDonald's here. Well, you're in Bumble nowhere, so <laughs> I'm not surprised. It would do very well if it was here, though. <laughs> uh, Why well, it's a uni life. town, isn't it? So Yeah. Hang on, let me see. Where is the closest one? Edinburgh, Dundee. Um, Glasgow. No, there is one in Dundee, yeah. Yeah, there's a few around, but uh, that's like a 15-minute drive if I want a McDonald's. Not yeah. worth. Not worth. Anyway, sorry. Derailed. Derailed by McDonald's. Back to Matty Seti. Yeah. Let Seti back in. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> uh, this is why I'm not allowed to do things on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Seti then. I don't know, what are you doing, Seti? Explain Seti. Oh, about? cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great. I just didn't know if there's anything so, more to add, what they're doing these days. Nah, we don't need to worry about it. We've, we've, we've covered it. Okay. You covered it from down, down in Cornwall. Moving on. Okay, let's go. Have you seen Stanley. the film Signal? The Signal? Signal? Uh, it's called The Signal. Film? Uh, Signal. 1990s, was it? Or was it oh, 2014? Oh, this is, is that one where it's like space? Okay, I'm thinking of the wrong one. 
there's a film based in America and they receive a signal and they work in SETI. Like it's all, it's a film about SETI. 1999, I'm going to go with. No, it's just coming up with The Mummy. No. Well, I'll find this film uh, another time. But basically, they send out a signal and they actually receive a transmission back. And it's instructions on how to build uh, a spaceship. And then she goes in the spaceship. I really thought it was called <laughs> The Signal, but... Because well, The Signal is uh, a space one, but it's where some guy finds a signal and then um, he gets kidnapped by aliens. You don't find out right to the end when they replace his legs with uh, super powerful legs and he oh. runs through the side of the ship. You not seen that? No. It's got um, Brenton Thwaites in it. If you know who he is. I don't. Okay, it's got Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, okay. I know Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a pretty good movie, to be honest. Visuals at the end are a bit weird. But, um, yeah. I feel like they they always are, these kinds of things. It's like The Arrival, mate. The Arrival is, if you want to watch, like, a space communication movie, Arrival is always the way to go. The Arrival is very good. Am I thinking of The Arrival? Not The Arrival, just Arrival. Arrival with, um... What is the actress's name? It's got Hawkeye and... um, You're right. What is her name? She does a really good job. Oh, Contact is the film I'm thinking of. Uh, Amy Adams is... uh, The Arrival, right? Amy Adams. Um, But this has... Jodie Foster. That's the name I was thinking of. Contact, really good. Recommend. Nineteen ninety-seven, it came out, but it still holds up. Um, and it's about SETI scientists actually finding life or getting mm. a response, anyway. But if you're going to watch a movie, Arrival's better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, get back to us, Team Arrival, I, Team Contact. I absolutely love Arrival so much because it feeds into um, Willy Wobbly, Timey Wimey big revelation as well as um space and aliens as well as space and the whole like language communication aspect is super interesting and really well done yeah as well that also happens in real life because we've talked about this before back when we've done in a past life we did it language as a as a thing which we should do again because it's very interesting yeah um and it's all about how different languages perceive time yes which is a crazy thing to think about but it's a perception of like in English, you've got like oh, I'm just gonna pop, I'm gonna pop here, I'm gonna pop, there. I'm just gonna pop into the shops, and how like we we classify and talk about it, and Italians, if you see it, it's a bit different Italian. Um, well, the the example used in the paper that spoke about this was Greek and Spanish speakers, and they don't use like it was a long event. They use it was like a big event or something. So. Oh, the way yes. that their language describes event is less time oriented, and so their perception mm-hmm. of the same events uh, experienced by people from different backgrounds uh, is time warped. 
Yes. Which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all right, let's get on to some paradoxes, some Fermi paradoxes. Paradoxes. Uh, Speaking of I Italians, think this is you. This is me. Yeah, you because I've only got a small amount of Fermi paradoxes. You okay, can, you can go for it. So this is named after one Enrico Fermi. Absolutely great name. Again, uh, <laughs> physicist has strong names named in after the paradox. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, he was named after the paradox. <laughs> Um, so basically, no. in 1950, he kind of put out, it wasn't a full paper, maybe like an opinion piece, uh, essentially mm-hmm. titled, Where Is Everybody? And not okay. human everybody, but considering the fact, now remember this is 1950, so it's just slightly before the Drake Equation came out, but it kind of fed into the Drake Equation, and it was this whole... You know, everyone's starting to question, okay, we know so much about the universe now. Well, we know even more now. Um, But since there are so many planets out there, essentially as far as we can comprehend as humans, an infinite amount. Right. And we've spawned here... Spawned. That's that's the wrong phrase. We've evolved. (laughs) (laughs) We've been spawn camped by aliens. We've been spawn camped, yeah. yeah. Um, And considering how old the universe is... And we've had time to evolve and send messages out into space. Mm-hmm. We're fairly late on the cosmic time scale. I mean, maybe not in the grand scheme of things, but up to where we are now. You know, we Earth had a, multiple chances to form earlier in different parts of the universe. So given that's the case, why are we not constantly bombarded by radio signals and other signals from other parts of the universe life has had so many opportunities to arise why do we not see aliens and that kind of question spawned a lot of proposed explanations but became known as the fermi paradox paradox because given the likelihood or just the the, the numerous amount of planets you would expect there to be mm-hmm. other life and there's not um, so people have tried to rationalize it and explain it in many, many different ways and many theories still, you know, crop up. But there are a few based ones that have been around for a long time and kind of hold up to scrutiny. Uh, but what have you got around uh, the Fermi paradox? It's actually that, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's the, the four the four things. Okay, yeah, go, go for the, the four things. Okay, so cyber one. Initial assumption is incorrect and technology advanced intelligent life is much rarer than we believe. Okay. Two is our current observations are incomplete and we have no way of detecting them yet. Which, yeah. You know, it's true. Three is our search methodologies are flawed. We're not searching the correct indicators. Probably valid. Yep, and the fourth is... It is nature of intelligent life to destroy itself, which is quite, you know, depressing. Um, but yeah. But how, you know, 22, 2022, 2023, 2022, <laughs> 2001 went. Um, yeah. I, the know, plague is. Yeah. Um, like those once in a lifetime events keep happening <laughs> once a year. Yeah. Which I'd rather they didn't. That'd be great if they just stopped, but no, no sign of them slowing down. <laughs> um, so I think they, I have, 
ran into a couple of categories that you touched upon there that people have tried to explain why we don't see it. And it's not necessarily that the paradox is flawed. It's just there are actually logical explanations to why we don't see mm-hmm. things. Um, one of the big categories is that intelligence life is just actually really rare, as you said. And mm-hmm. that stems into three categories. Is extraterrestrial life in any form rare or non-existent? Then making the step to in, evolve into intelligence life is an even harder barrier to break. Um, and then potentially even life that does exist it goes through periodic extinction by natural events. And there's a wonderful, mm. wonderful theory called the Great Filters. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the Great Filter. And essentially... It's one way to explain the lack of life that we see is even, let's say, there's certain barriers that we had to pass through evolutionarily to even exist. And some of them are bigger than others and may filter out life at a certain point. So the first big filter or big thing that has to happen is molecules have to come together to form life. Like, if the conditions are not right, then life will never begin in the first place, whether it's single-celled or more so that's the first filter maybe some planets never even get to that point then you've got the jump from single cell to multicellular life maybe Mm -hmm. you know that's a really hard barrier that's quite an energetic expenditure to make and conditions have to be right for that so that's another thing stopping life progressing um and then from there it keeps jumping through various filters and the current ones we're facing are like war and are civilizations doomed as you say to just kill themselves uh through things like war or is space exploration another filter i mean that's a very hard one as we're finding out now to actually come across right many companies and uh, governments are trying to explore uh just even our solar system and we're not you know we, we made it to the moon a couple of times and then it kind of fizzled out, you know? Now oh, we God. set our sight on Mars. <laughs> yep. So uh, we'll see. We shall I see. I definitely think we should try and, like, get back to, to the moon and, like, start building on the moon again. Well, that's the Artemis program, right? And the first yeah, Artemis I... shuttle launched last year? December? I think it was. Yeah, and so I think they're on track 2025, 2026 they want to be people on the moon again and the Artemis mission is to build the Artemis um, lunar base it'd just be cool it'd just it'd be cool yeah it would be cool I, I don't know <laughs> it would be cool if that's like a good enough thing reason why but, not? You know, I, just want it. I think that it is cool. science in a way. People often end up exploring the things that they think are cool. And having a lunar yeah. base is going to allow us to really f- expand kind of our research in microgravity, which, you know, resource gathering as well. It can also act as like a launch pad to Martian missions. Yeah, that's the reason that I think it's needed is it's a lot easier to escape escape it's, it's called escape velocity isn't it yeah it's easier to generate escape velocity from the moon than it is from earth yes so if we can find a way of creating that like in between 
it's so much easier easier for us to get you know to Mars, which is what you know SpaceX is trying was trying to do. Yeah, for the Twitter saga, I'm pretty sure they're probably still on that. Uh, they're probably still trying to do that. I think, um, just not heard anything oh, 100%. in a while. But that's fine. These things take time. They do. They do. Hopefully, in our timeline. But I think more, bit more likely to happen in our timeline is we'll be able to upload our brains into a, a cloud like San Junipero, and then we'll be shipped. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. 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 Valid. I think that's what will happen. Um, we've got some evolutionary explanations as well, which is just that it kind of feeds into the great filter stuff. Alien species may just not develop advanced technologies or <laughs> the depressing one, as you said, it's the nature of life to destroy itself or others. So maybe we don't even want aliens to find us because, you know, they'll just come attacking. They'll just come, yeah. And I think from a very humanistic point of view, if you look back in history, it's always been about expanding borders, finding new places, right? That led to colonization of the world. But maybe that's a very human thing. Maybe colonization isn't the cosmic norm. Mm-hmm. And aliens are just quite content to, you know, actually look after the planet they're on. <laughs> and the <laughs> their co-inhabitants. <laughs> yeah. Um, Who'd have thunked? Who'd have thunked it? Yeah. So, and the other thing, maybe there are, there are alien life out there expanding, but they're just in a very different part of the galaxy. So it's going to take them millions of years to actually mm-hmm. uh, bump into us. Millions. Millions and millions of years. Um, so yeah, that kind of sums that up really. Um, there's a channel on YouTube called Kurtzigat, which I've pronounced oh, yeah, horribly, Kurtzigat. I'm sure. Kurtzigat. Kurtzigat. They do yeah, Kurtzigat. small, short, 10 minute long, sometimes animated like videos, just breaking down really complicated topics. And they do two episodes on the Fermi Paradox and one episode on the Great Filter. Uh, really worth a watch. Really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Very soothing voice as well. I could fall asleep to to that voice. That's <laughs> the recent one on the um, nuclear bomb going off. Isn't the recent one? They so did they do ex- one on that. Yeah, yeah. And explain how like once it goes off, essentially the rock uh, on the mantle around the blast essentially acts as a liquid. I was like, it's so crazy to think about on that scale. That's mad. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we're coming up to the hour. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to? Oh, yeah. Quickly, I'll thumb in the rare earth hypothesis. Oh yes. Uh, the rare earth hypothesis postulates that multicellular life forms found on Earth may actually be more of a rarity than scientists assume. So this is just compounding the. <laughs> yeah, this is even more rare than. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. sense. I mean, I think like the basic assumption is since we're so complex and, you know, that's gone through millions of years of evolution, you would at least expect that some other form of life, even if it's not as complex as being able to think about the abstract like we can and communicate Mm -hmm. that, but you would at least expect 
life has formed somewhere. And the more we find out about the rovers on Mars, the more I'm convinced at some point they'll just come across like a bacterium or something. Like there was water on there. It had an atmosphere. There's ice on there now, you know. There's a lot there to support the fact that life could have been on Mars at some point. So Mm -hmm. if it's not, then that really compounds the fact of how difficult it can be for life to form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. We'll leave it there then, shall we? Yeah, we'll uh, come back next week with... Well, as you, as you kind of alluded to, uh, black holes, <laughs> gravitational black time dilation. Gravitational time dilation, a bit of dark energy, dark, dark matter. Energy, yeah. We'll see maybe what we we'll, get on we'll to. that. Yeah. Maybe we'll just chill out with solar flares. Solar flares, astrobiology. Astrobiology. That seems yeah, a bit more chill. We'll just do that. Okay. Well, if that sounds like a good time to you, then catch us next week. Don't forget to share this with your friends, families, co-workers, scientists, dogs, plants. Any, every listen counts. It's fine. Uh, you can, yeah. If you want more fun every information, you can find us on Twitter and TikTok at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, and of course, whichever directory you're listening to this on right now, if you can give us a like, a rating, a share, you can just copy the link. That helps. Um, so, yeah. Anything else you want to throw on in there? That's it from me. Awesome source, then. Awesome sources. Awesome sources. All right. We'll catch you guys next week. Peace. Ciao for now.